Hello and welcome to episode three of the Marathon Bet Boot Room to Boardroom and Everything in Between podcast with me, Danny Kelly, and him, Simon Jordan. Hello, Simon. Hi, Danny. Good to be here. Thank you very much for being here. And this week we're going to concentrate on, uh, I think, one of your fields of expertise. Every football club, whether it likes it or not, has to have a manager. If the football club is run by you, they have a lot of managers. And we're going to talk about those benighted men who sit in the dugouts over the next 30 or 40 minutes here on the podcast. And here's what's to come. I saw you in the dugouts and I thought you were an effing disgrace. What in God's name would I want to employ a complete W like you for? I love Steve Bruce now, but at the time I didn't. (laughs) And gardening leave wasn't what he thought it was because he wrote me a letter saying, Chairman, I don't know why I've got to mow your lawn. Have you ever sacked a manager? So I'm going to ask you straightforwardly now because we know each other because you knew someone better was lurking in the market. I made a flippant comment about Peter Taylor being very good at doing Norman Wisdom impressions so I just didn't expect him to do them in my dugout. Did you take any advice on this, Simon, or was it no, just off your own back? No, I did it off my own back. I'm going to have a Lee Harvey Oswald moment here. I'm going to serve him with a writ live on television to ensure that the rest of the world knows what a duplicitous little twerp he is. The world of football went, what the hell is this? This is an opportunity for you, Simon, and for everyone listening to hear you coming in off your long run, because we're going to do today, um, we're going to talk about one of your very favourite subjects, and subjects is actually the word, because they were your subjects, we're going to talk about managers. Mm -hmm. Managers then, managers now, the managers you've known, how it all works with managers and all the rest of it. I'd like to start by asking you a simple question, Simon. I am a not stupid bloke. I've been to tens of thousands of football matches and I've watched even more on television. I've led teams in the publishing world and all the rest of it. Yep. Why can't I manage a professional football team? I think, like any, any industry, it has its uniqueness about it. And football is an industry built a lot upon myth and smoke and mirrors and people's perceptions of it. So you, you have this sort of idea within the confines of football that football managers are these church Ilian characters that are great leaders of men and speak in a language um, that is unique to the sport of football. And often it isn't, but there is a, a sort of hierarchy or a pecking order or a thinking more to the point in football where... It is about what you've done and where you've been and what you represent that will gain and garner currency with your young charges, in this, in this instance, the players. Now, of course, in the business of football, it is a very unforgiving culture, so it doesn't matter what your credentials were. If you walk in that dressing room, that unique environment, which we'll talk about later on mm. in the show, that unique environment, if the first thing that comes out of your mouth is something the players don't like... Then or, or don't agree with or don't respect or somehow isn't on their wavelength, then all of the currency that you had as being the first million-pound footballer, for example, one of the managers that yeah. I employed, goes out of the window. Or you've so, won this or you've won that. Yeah, it is a strange industry because it's like smoke and mirrors. It's behind the looking glass. It's like the Wizard of Oz. You know, what's going on behind there? Not a lot often. But there is, like all industries, a way of speaking within the confines of it, a way of operating within the confines of it, and a method of communicating to your charges that enables you to be a football manager. And of course, you know, a lot has changed over the years, Dan. And this is a slightly long answer, but the game has changed because when I walked through the door in 2000, you had to put your caps on the table to be a football manager. And of course, over the years, Rafa Benitez and Arsene Wenger and Jose Mourinho have disproved that myth. They that weren't great footballers. They weren't great they footballers. Were the, and some of them weren't even the footballers. And, you know, this very this very week as we speak, Mark, Mark Warburton, Warburton has just been Absolutely. appointed to QPR. He's Rangers, come out yeah. from outside of football. Absolutely. So, so maybe that's changing. I don't know. Well, I think it's changing because I think over the years, as people start to see more of the real football rather than the fact that football represent myths, 
it starts to show and dispel a lot of these myths. And you're starting to see a change in the business of football. You're starting to see the difference in managers and coaches and the way that managers operated back in the days when, say, Bill Shankly or Bob Paisley or Brian Clough operated, that they went and negotiated deals and even they did Ferguson, every aspect. Even fair, Ferguson. Yeah. So there was a complete sea change. And I think it's to do with the maturing in the industry, Dan, that really and truly... Football coaches are football coaches. They're not negotiators or businessmen. They are simply people that coach players to either be better technically or in this day and age, probably better human beings and to be able to manage their moods and, and their attitudes and outlooks dependent upon their bank balance. Well, look, we, we will come on to the change in the way managers are. Um, one of the reasons I like working with you is because I always think of you as Captain Redbeard Rum out of, uh, out of Blackadder. <laughs> if you remember, every other sea captain in the world believes that a ship needs a crew. Captain Redbeard Rum uh, begs to differ, and you're the same. Because <laughs> when you got into the game sign, when you bought Crystal Palace at the yeah. turn of this century, everybody used to talk about stability of management. Yep. That's what a club needs. It needs to be stable. In the first three years at Palace, you went through five managers. Mm. In the time you were there altogether, I got my abacus out earlier on, you went through nine managers. Yep. We'll talk about some of these people and, and how it went, but were you just not a believer in the stability argument or each one was a matter of circumstance? A bit of both, uh, Danny, because I think stability is a core product of a business let's say explicitly football because that's what we're talking about but only if stability is evolving you in the right direction if you're moving in the right direction if your direction of travel is on the ascent if your blueprint was as a manager was to come in and stabilize and remove the rot and start to progress and to develop your youth system and to develop a manner of play and all sorts of things and you're going down that route then that's stability is reasonable to have there but if you bring a manager in I've never subscribed to this rule that football seems to believe that people get a passage of time a significant passage of time without any really big noticeable change yet at the heart of that if you think different and you start to change that or remove people then you're removing stability from the environment stability for stability's sake isn't to my mind stability it's just perpetuating mediocrity or actually eventually allowing the progress that you think you want to be arrested and for it to be going backwards. So I never held to the myth of football that because it's football, people should be given a long time. If you don't notice the effect within any business of senior management within a year, then there's something wrong. Totally. And this is, this is I mean, fans, I always say, the fans know within six months whether it's going to work or not. You have examples, in course, very recent one this season, where the fans and even the press are starting to get it wrong. Daniel yeah. Farkas start at Norwich City this season would have said he's had plenty of time yeah, he's yeah. been here a while and he hasn't worked out but of course we were that was knee jerk and it was wrong but I think also there were two vantage points there is the voyeuristic point of view that the fans will have which will they'll see the output on a Saturday afternoon and I often had the same view when players used to come to me during certain managers tenure and say come down the training ground and see what's going on because you won't like it Mr Chairman I said I don't care what's going on the training ground I see what's going on the training ground on a Saturday afternoon but there are often things that you don't see the fans will see a poor performance on a Saturday afternoon and that will ultimately condense their mind into the fact that something's wrong whereas I might see different things I'll see younger players coming through and I'll see things that are going in the right direction that I'm prepared yeah. to accept if I see no progress if I see no involvement if I see no progress on the pitch I see no progress in the in the youth development I see no progress in our win and loss records if I see nothing that I can grasp tangibly and go okay despite the fact I've got this manager on a three year contract and if I get rid of him I've got to pay him why am I sitting here waiting for an ever-decreasing circle to ever decrease because clearly this person isn't able to take us forward. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm trigger-happy or that I just 
you know, pulled from the hip. It means that I look at things quickly and try and assess the progress that we're making objectively against reasonable levels of expectation, not silly expectations. It's always reasonable. that balance between progress and stagnation. Are we stagnating yeah. or are we progressing? Of course, one of the great joys of owning a football club is that you get to pick and choose the manager, except for one case. You inherit the first one you ever get. Yeah. So you buy Crystal Palace, you've got Manchester United, Palace, England legend Steve Coppel mm. on board. Well, what I learned very quickly, and I'll go to Steve Coppel in a minute, was that I came into football to change the direction of travel of the football club that I bought and to try and influence every aspect of it. And what I learned really quickly was the biggest decisions that you make as a football club chairman is who you hire and when you fire them. And it's those that you zero and hunker down on. And what I did when I walked into Palace was I was a, a newbie football club owner that had great ambition and great energy and I was 31 years of age and I was young, dumb and full of whatever that expression is. And, and vinegar. I, yeah, <laughs> and I wanted to, to push and I wanted to work with a manager that was very much regarded very highly by the fans but somebody I found very difficult to communicate with and somebody I didn't enjoy communicating with and in fact you know I even compared him in, in an anecdote to being so negative that he interfered with the signal strength of my phone because I just couldn't communicate with him and sometimes you meet these guys and you know not everyone in this world can you get on with him. Stevie Coppel was a product of Palace's past. He'd been there when, you know, they'd gotten to an, an FA Cup final in 1990. He'd come back, gone away, come back, and had also been uh, elevated to the status of hero because the club had been in administration before I bought it. He'd been there. He'd galvanised the environment and, and kept it all together. But also, during that time, there were no leaders, so Steve could do what he wanted, when he wanted, without any accountability. I come through the door, and I want to know how things work, and I want to understand. And what I got was a monosyllabic, grunting football manager deigning to talk to me every now and again when he felt like it. And I, I couldn't work no, with you that. you can't have that. So from my point of view, you know, I was out there trying to sign players. We talked in the last show about some of the indignations I had foisted upon me, namely... Neil Ruddock being one of them and those were things that people like Steve Coppel could have helped me with and so whilst it was at the time a very unpopular decision I decided after a particularly appalling performance during the pre-season that it just simply wasn't going to work between myself and Steve the dynamic wasn't right uh, he didn't want to work for a young energetic up and atom chairman which he could have guided he could have steered and helped me not try and knock the world out with my chin he yeah. could have guided me through, but he didn't want to. He wanted me to fall at every single hurdle. So I just thought, you know what? My biggest champion should be my senior management. My senior management in a football club has to be the manager. And if my biggest obstacle is my manager, then I need to get rid of that as quickly as possible. Placing a bet? It's exhausting running around looking for the best odds. Don't waste your breath. It's time you check Marathon Bet. Before you place your acker this week, check Marathon Bet first. You may find we're best priced. And better odds mean bigger winnings. Download the Marathon Bet app or visit marathonbet.co.uk. 18 plus begamblerware.org. What's the process, Simon, for you? I mean, maybe it varies from club to club to club. Yeah. How do you go about identifying a manager? And how many, this whole thing, interviewing half a dozen people? Yeah, you do and you don't. I mean, the first appointment I made, I made on the back of a fag packet. And you spend 
millions of pounds in other businesses uh, or you have people in other businesses that you spend inordinate amounts of time recruiting and paying lots of money and going through interviews and bringing them into board meetings and having other people interview them and then you rock into football and all those logic seems to disappear out the window because you go with your gut feel or you go what you've read in a newspaper or you go with, with what somebody else introduces to your thinking and my first managerial appointment certainly fitted that profile but there and afterwards I tried to interview football managers as I would interview any other commercial business, but slightly more educated in the nuances of football. The first manager I appointed after Steve Koppel was a guy called Alan Smith. I brought him back for reasons that I thought were sound. We had a young playing squad. He was the academy director at Fulham, and he had had a history with Crystal Palace. He had been part of the management team that had been successful. He'd managed Palace in 94 when they'd got relegated from the Premier League with record points at 49 points, which would probably get you ninth or tenth yeah, now you mean Europe <laughs> yeah and he had had and I, and I thought it was a decent fit it wasn't he wasn't the right person in my view now looking back yeah, I think sure. he was a charlatan but it, the damage to my mind was all on my chin because I was the one that went and spent 10 or 15 million pounds on players I was the one that uh, was ultimately responsible for that appointment and ultimately the, the failings of that season which almost got us relegated which would have really changed the whole atmosphere around my ownership of Crystal Palace at that time so on that appointment, it really was back of the fag packet stuff. There was no forensic drill down and looking at the personality of the individual. It was, Christ, I've got a manager that I need replacing. How do I get one in? He feels that he sounds like he'll do the job. Bring him in through the door. You learned from that and there was more of a process. I mean, we'll come back to the others, but Ian Dowie famously, during his time as a football manager, I mean, now he's a pundit more than a manager, I guess it's yep. fair to say, he used to turn up and do PowerPoint presentations. Do you remember his interview? Well, I think as we know now that the profession of football management has become much more sophisticated, you know, there's still this mentality that football managers can operate in a certain way and there's certain breeds of football managers which I now believe are eliminated, being eliminated from the game and had a certain way of operating which often meant football managers on one island, chairman on another and never the train shall meet. And over the years, it's become far more of a straight line and there's much more communication between a chairman or a chief executive and the football manager. But at that time, Dowie was quite innovative because there wasn't this basic level of professionalism because they all got jobs on the back of what people's perception of their reputation was rather than the reality of what they really were. And Dowie, when I eventually met him, had gone through two or three interviews with a guy called Terry Bullivant, who I'd brought in as technical director. Terry had formed part of a management team that had been quite successful with Steve Kemba, working under Steve Bruce. I trust his judgment. He was what I considered to be an educated football man. He understood the dynamics of what I wanted for Crystal Palace. He understood me, because I think part of the job of a football manager is most football managers can manage down. They can manage their charges. They find it very difficult to manage up. They don't seem to want to afford the chairman the same respect they expect from there. But people beneath them, <laughs> i.e. if the player spoke to managers sometimes the way managers think they can speak to chairman, the managers would have something to say about it. But when Dowie came in, Dowie came in with a commercial thinking in mind. I now know that that's something that he repeated in other environments. It wasn't particularly innovative, but he tried to drill down on what he thought I would want to hear yeah. and what he thought I needed. He'd taken the time to evaluate the playing squad. He'd taken the time to look at the ideals behind Crystal Palace in the last three or four years in my ownership. And he brought forward a PowerPoint presentation that kind of made me think that there was some rhyme and reason behind his thinking. Now, the previous managers, and specifically Trevor, I tried to draw Trevor Francis into that way of thinking and, and famously sort of fired him because I'd asked him to write a blueprint, which he had never heard of. 
on the way forward for Crystal Palace, and his blueprint kind of said more of the same, which would meant tenth in the league for the next have, few seasons. Have you, have you yet managed to read Trevor's book? I haven't. So we still don't know how you... So we still don't know how I come out of podcast, it, yeah, yeah. I really want you to yeah, know, talk about do. what Trevor's yeah. had to say about, yeah. about you. Yeah. You talk about innovation there when talking about Ian Dowie. You're quite an innovative chairman yourself with regards to your managers. You're the first manager to put, as far as I can remember, a senior proper figure in the mm. managerial world on gardening leave. Was that Steve Bruce? Yeah, it was. I mean, I didn't seek confrontation. I'm just not one of those personalities that, that looks to avoid it either. And if you have that mentality, you'll find it in the business of football. Because football is a liberty-taking culture at its baseline. And when you walk into it from the commercial world, you see this liberty-taking culture and you start to rub your chin. And then eventually what happens in football is liberty becomes liberty becomes liberty until eventually it becomes an atrocity and then someone steps in and goes, <laughs> I've got to deal with this. Now, my bar of tolerance for liberties was very low because I learnt... Uh, Chairman is Gallic for get your checkbook out. That was my job in life, was to go out around writing checks. Because in previous businesses, I was called Simon Jordan or a managing director. In football, you get the title of Mr. Chairman, which means absolutely nothing. But insofar as the tolerance of people's behaviour, Steve Bruce was someone I really liked and I had interviewed. And the story about Steve Bruce being put on gardening leave was something that was unheard of at the time because I had recruited Steve against the backdrop of my own dissent. I didn't want him. I was forced to interview him by an agent that suggested I should. And when I interviewed him, I interviewed him in a very aggressive and robust fashion because I'd seen Steve managing a football club the previous year that had played against us, Huddersfield Town. Right. And Steve was the manager and he had fallen out with his owner, a guy called Barry Rubery, who was the chairman of Huddersfield. Huddersfield had done really well the previous season. It looked like they were going to get promoted, but just on the cusp of the finish of the season, they'd sold their star striker, a, a guy called Marcus Stewart, to Ipswich. Yeah. Bruce had had a turn about it, and from that point, his relationship with this chairman was very, very poor. We played them at the, what was the McAlpine Stadium at the time. I saw this dreadful outlook from Brucey in the dugout to his chairman and after the game I said to Barry Rubri if I had someone like that working for me I'd fire them go forward six or seven months I'm now being convinced to interview Stevie Bruce he flies over to Spain because I did a lot of interviews in Spain because I was living in Spain at the time and my first question out of the box with Steve Bruce because I believe that if you're going to interview someone you hit them hard because then you get to see the real person not their interview face I'm not interested in them dialing out the rhetoric to be able to appease me I want to hear I want to see what they really are all about right so the first thing I said to Bruce was, this time, about seven or eight months ago, I saw you in the dugouts for Huddersfield, and I thought you were an effing disgrace. Right? What in God's name would I want to employ a complete W like you for? And Brucey went off going, I, you know what, I realise this might be a difficult interview, but... He then went on to explain to me about the fact that he'd fallen out with the chairman and this and that, and he recognised the fact he was wrong. But what I really liked about him was this. You could see why this guy was the captain of Manchester United. You could see what he brought to the table. Yeah. So I thought we had a dream team. I thought that me being 32 at that time, Brucey was 38, 39. There was a communication channel between us that was easy to make because we had similar age groups. And, of course, when he came in, we were top of the league. Birmingham City came in for him. And Steve betrayed my confidence and betrayed my trust 
and I wasn't in a mood for it and I wasn't going to tolerate it and I wasn't going to allow him to walk out the door after being there for three or four months, being given everything he wanted, be as disrespectful and as dissentful as he could to try and orchestrate the break, and then come back and take my backroom staff and dismantle my playing squad. Why that would built. you, Simon? Why would you? So I did something that people thought was absolutely absurd, was I put him on gardening leave. I said, right, before the season had started, I decided to introduce a new management contract, which is basically a two-way transaction. If I fire you, I have to pay you a fixed-term contract for however long you're there for. If it's three years or two years, if I fire you, I've got to pay you. Right. If you leave... I'm going to want notice so you can't just trot out the door when it feels like it. And, of course, that caught Brucey in a situation where he wanted to leave and go and work for David Sullivan and David Gold at Birmingham, who he'd played for and felt that he had an opportunity that was greater there than the one he had with mine, even though we were top of the league. And I decided you're going to learn a lesson and you're going to get put on gardening leave. Now, I love Steve Bruce now, but at the time, I didn't. (laughs) And gardening leave wasn't what he thought it was because he wrote me a letter saying, Chairman, I don't know why I've got to mow your lawn because he didn't understand (laughs) that gardening leave meant, you know, you're going to be put on one side and do as you're told. So it was a change of direction for people in football because they thought, why would you do that? Everybody just rolled over. Everybody just said, oh, I have to accept the manager comes and does as he wants. I wasn't prepared to do that. And I think sometimes the hard way, is the best way because I think if you compromise in certain circumstances you get compromised outcomes now at the end of the day he did leave at the end of the day I did get the compensation that I thought was reasonable for us because Birmingham were trying to pay nothing but notwithstanding it it still was a slightly contentious time and the world of football went the hell is this I mean, Simon, you mentioned that Trevor Francis was incapable of producing even the most basic plan for the club going yeah. forward. Ian Dowie was apparently very good at this kind of yeah, uh, was, forensic yeah. analysis of football clubs, and yet you end up with him in a court of law. And not only that, we one of the most public conflicts ever with a manager, mm. which ends up with Ritz flying at a press conference. Tell us that story. Ian had presided over a period of success and had come in when Palace were fourth and bottom in the league and achieved this wonderful thing of getting us promoted in the same season. It was a miracle, wasn't it? Well, we had the players there. And the reasons why I had fired Steve Kemba is because I knew we had the players there and I knew that we had enough talent to be able to be doing far better than we were doing. So it wasn't a surprise to me that Ian came round and galvanised these guys and got them going the right way. But what it was, what manifested between myself and Ian, is there's nothing wrong with personality clashes, Danny. You, you don't have to get on with people all the time. You have to respect their acumen. What I found with Ian is it was very difficult to manage. His father was a union leader. He came from that same school of thought, which was everybody out, and if, if they didn't like something. And Ian was one of those guys that would have something to say on a telephone, which when you called him on, he'd have something different to say to your face. So it was always a challenge, always a battle. It was always an argument, even when it came down to Ian being rewarded. It was an argument about the reward. And I found him challenging. When we got promoted to the Premier League, I very seriously considered firing Ian. Wow. Which was something that you've seen happen now. Jukanovic was fired by Watford when they went up that season. Because sometimes the manager that takes you up isn't actually the right manager to operate in the Premier League. And because of my views on Ian, I didn't enjoy the experience. I enjoyed the outcomes of what he was producing in my team, but I damn sure didn't enjoy working with him because he didn't deploy the same logic that he wanted deployed to him. We touched it earlier on. Managers want demand and command respect from their players, and they expect to be given it. They've also got to exhibit the same traits up to their employer, which in this instance is me and the chairman. Not because I walk around with a bloody big cap on saying Mr Chairman on it, because it's the appropriate thing to do, and I've earned that respect, and I deserved it, and I should have gotten it. Now, it wasn't a small-minded perspective. It was just a difficult relationship that Ian didn't want to have anything other than exactly what he wanted when he wanted it. So 
we went up to the Premier League. We got relegated in the last game of the season. Ian was given significant tools in the championship, including one of England's top strikers that came down with the side that I'd made stay. We went and bought other strikers. We had the strongest squad. But the relationship was very testing and very trying, and it was fought with arguments all year. And all I wanted to do was support Ian and be able to have Ian be supportive backwards because it's a two-way transaction. Right. I'm his biggest champion, and he should also be mine. And it wasn't that way. It felt like it was a battle all the time. And towards the end of the relationship, the team had gotten into the playoffs. We'd lost in the playoff final. I was not amused by some of the antics that had gone on during the season. I was not amused by the performance of the team when we had by far the best team in the league. And at the end of the season, myself and Ian had a very robust exchange of views. Ian was very capable of having a robust view himself. Mm -hmm. And I'm very capable of giving him one back. And it kind of brought us to a conclusion that this wasn't really working out. So... Ian, like all managers, had a fixed-term contract. When you give a manager a contract, it's for a period of time, which means you're obligated to pay that manager for a period of time. And very rarely do managers get dismissed for gross misconduct, which means you haven't got to pay them full sure. stop. Atypically, if you fire someone two years into a contract, and they've got a three-year contract, you've you got to pay that last year. You can do deals, and you can. Then there's an element of obligation now to, for them to mitigate if they get a job somewhere else. But Ian and I were coming to a conclusion that it wasn't working out. I had a million pound compensation clause in my contract for what people considered to be, because they didn't know him, was a very hot property as a manager. <laughs> and I, facetious there, I um, <laughs> I decided that Ian came to me and said, listen, I, I'm still based in the north with my family. I'd like to go back to Oldham and I'm going to look for a management job up in Oldham or in and around that sort of area, yeah, up in the yeah. northwest yeah. of, of, yeah, yeah. of England. Yeah. At the time, Charlton had fired their manager. There was a lot of bad blood between Charlton and Palace. And bad blood with their chairman, bad blood with their supporters to old our supporters, just bad blood between two well, clubs. Well, they're very, very local rivals. Yeah. And they should have been more grateful because we gave them a home to, to reside in for a period of time. But that's Charlton. That's another subject. And Ian convinced me to release him from his contracts on the basis that he was going north. Right, and subsequently waived the million pound compensation that I was entitled to if he landed at another football club which I thought was a very generous gesture on my part you would yeah but the some extent of his going north was about six miles to Charlton and Charlton is north of Croydon to yeah, be absolutely so I mathematically took, correct about it I took it. great exception to that and I thought I'm going to have a Lee Harvey Oswald moment here I'm going to serve him with a writ live on television to ensure that the rest of the world knows what a duplicitous little twerp he is. Did you take any advice on this, sign, or was it no, just off your own back? No, I did it on my own back. I sat in Spain, phoned up my lawyers and said, what can I get him for? What can I get him? And they said, fraudulent misrepresentation, which they didn't tell me at the time was the hardest case in English to law prove. to prove. Right? <laughs> but fraudulent misrepresentation. So I decided to serve Dowie. When is the greatest moment a football manager that's going somewhere he really wants to be you know, admired? It's at their press conference. The unveiling press unveiling. conference, yeah. So I thought it would be humorous and a very big point to be made into the football world that people who behave this way are going to have some accountability so I got a guy that was a private detective to serve him with the writ live in the Charlton press conference he couldn't get in and I phoned up someone from Sky and said do you want to see something really interesting give us, give him some press credentials let this guy in the room so he served Dowie live on camera one of those I let's say leave Harvey Oswald moments with this writ which then resulted in Ian being taken to court and being convicted of fraud and he was found guilty of fraudulent misrepresentation because that's what he did. Yeah. He told me lies to get himself released from a contract, which released the obligation from someone to pay a million pounds for him, which gave him to Charlton for free, which meant he then went to a very public high court and got that on his record. How is it when you're in the same room with Ian nowadays? I haven't seen him. Of all the football managers that I've worked with, 
and hired and fired, I have retained and maintained a decent relationship with them. Steve Bruce, Trevor Francis. They're your friends. Peter Taylor. And I can be quite facetious about some of the comments I make, but they've retained a level of respect because they knew that I've said what I meant and I meant what I said. With Ian, I found Ian very difficult. I didn't enjoy any of the two and a half years he was there. I don't think it covered either one of us in glory with the benefit of hindsight. But you know what? You do what you do because I did it because I thought it was the right thing to protect my football club. And it was a brilliant piece of television, Mm, Simon, if I say so. You actually mentioned there about managers getting payoffs. I mean, the rest of us in the normal world, because there are two worlds, the normal world and there's football, isn't there? In the normal world, if you do badly in your job, you'll get a warning, you'll get some kind of key performance indicator, you'll get something go on, and then you will not be paid up for some long-distance future. they'll They'll say there's two weeks' money or whatever your notice is, and off you go. People are really genuinely bewildered, Simon, Mm. that football managers walk away from nowadays with millions from clubs because they have to pay up the whole of their contract, even if they're failing. Well, that is one of the the peculiarities and and nuances of the football world, which makes it a slightly difficult industry sometimes to operate within because you are paying sometimes people for failing. You know, people that get fired in football, managers for not doing their jobs. Very rarely do you see someone get fired for gross misconduct. It does happen every now and again. And then there is the same rules that deploy in terms of people not getting paid. But when you give someone a fixed-term contract, i.e. I take you on as my manager for three years and I say I'm going to pay you a million pounds a year and 18 months into the contract, I decide that the performance on the pitch isn't good enough for the way this football club wants to go, then it's incumbent upon me to pay you the next 18 months worth of contract because I signed you to a fixed-term contract. That's how that industry works. Management contracts have sort of followed on from player contracts because player contracts were all about clubs retaining value in players. Before the Bosman rule, which was brought in to give players more freedom of movement, player contracts were really under the control of clubs. You registered a player, he became your player, and even if he was out of contract, he still couldn't move without your permission. Now it's about freedom of movement. It's about when a contract expires, players can move for nothing or you want to sell them before there's two years left on their contracts, so you can retain maximum value. It's somewhat similar in management terms as well. And it's followed on because players became managers and so on and so forth. So it's almost fallen into that trap. And now more than ever, managers to me are the most one of the most important employees that you've got, one of the most important parts of a football team. And I'd never understood why their contracts weren't as valuable, why my managers weren't being transferred for millions of pounds so the answer to your question is is that when you fire a manager it's more often not because not because you've given them a set of disciplinary proceedings that have resulted in being one verbal warning a first and final verbal warning then no, a written warning how would that be it's primarily because you're looking at the pitch and you've got 25,000 fans going he's whatever he is we want him out and you're making a decision based upon the fact that he's not going the right way and then you're stuck with a bill and it is unique to football. It is the land of Narnia where you pay people for failing, but that is one of the unique facets of football that I always found slightly unpalatable. But there has now become much more control in place because there is an expectation to mitigate, which means they don't get it both ends, i.e. if they go off to another football club during that period, there is an element of mitigation. There will be certain exceptions with people like Mourinho where they will write that into their contract because when you're coveting a manager, you know, you listen to Mel Morris talk about Frank Lampard and how wonderful and how beautiful it was to have Frank and how lucky they were. You wondered how Mel was going to ever manage Frank if it didn't go the right way because he's already made him the Lord Mayor of Derby at that time. players ever come to I mean do you ever have a relationship if you're the owner of the club where a player or a group of players or a representation from the players come and say the manager's no good boss he's got to go yeah well I wasn't really tolerant of that because I 
wasn't interested in having a relationship with the players. I liked the players only insofar as their performance merited me liking them. They were employees of a football club that were very well paid, and my interest in them was predicated upon their performance. My champion, my relationship, my core relationship was with my manager. And I made the decision early in one of the manager's tenures to go into the dressing room and to vent my spleen at the players because they were, I thought their performance was deplorable. I hated the way they let the fans down at times and they didn't feel the way they should have done towards their responsibilities as football players. And it's a mistake because, you know, you go into a dressing room or you address the players outside of the manager's control and you're effectively saying to the manager or to the players, I don't trust this manager or I need to step in and intervene on behalf of the manager. And it happened a few times because I had certain managers that couldn't deal with certain players. But I didn't want to have these relationships, so I didn't spend a lot of time with the players. There were certain players that developed a relationship with me on a personal level, and there's certain players, Dougie Friedman was one of them, that came and saw me a couple of times about what was going on in the training ground. And I really wasn't interested to go down to the training ground and see the training Monday to Friday because I saw the outcome on a Saturday afternoon. I knew what was going on in the training ground by what I saw on a Saturday afternoon. Let me ask you another question about the same part of this process then. The players, you don't, you don't accept that. When you get rid of the manager, you've got a few hours, I presume, before he gets into the media, even less now with mm-hmm. 24-hour media. Do you go and tell the players? Who tells the players that the, the governor's on his way? Well, most of the time it's their bleeding fault. So they're not surprised. Um, <laughs> Somebody must tell them, though. Well, I, I, when Stevie Coppell got fired, I thought, oh, I must go tell, <laughs> down and tell the players. You know, all they were looking at was what the opportunities for them were. Could they go home early now? And, you know, what was going to happen for them rather than have any regret or any responsibility for the firing of a manager? And it was a, a wasted exercise. I stood in front of these group of players, Clinton Morrison and whoever else, going, right, well, I'm really sorry, lads, to tell you that. I've, couldn't, they couldn't care less. They couldn't a, care a, a less, waste, no. A waste of my breath. And I, what I just decided to do... They only want to know who is the next manager and does he fancy me? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I made the decisions very early that, the, you know, the, as I said to you a moment ago, my relationship with the players was limited. The players knew who I was and they knew that they had a chairman that could bang a bit in terms of I didn't muck about and I meant what I said and I said what I meant. And they knew their responsibilities. And there were times when I did things that I wanted the players to accept and I'd go and address them you know when I wanted to change the bonuses there was this absolute nonsensical rule that you have to players the bonus structure can only be changed if the players agree it right so I thought well okay I'll I'll accept that because that's the some unwritten rule that I seem to have to abide by but what it doesn't say is it's silent on when I will pay them right so I decided to pay them rather than pay them monthly I'll pay them annually and went down and told the players that and that wasn't up for debate so that that was the kind of relationship I had with players at times but I think it was also built upon the fact that the players had a degree of respect and understanding because I think football players need to know where they stand I know modern management has changed and there's a lot more people management in there but they still need to know where they stand so you know the players would hear as soon as the manager's fired the players know about it you know they're looking at their agents thinking can I get a move can I get an opportunity is there an opportunity for me here Yeah. players will see it that way they want to see if the new manager comes in and fancies them and if they do fancy them of course the next thing you need after that is a pay rise and all the rest of it yeah and again as I say 95% of the time the players are responsible for the demise of that guy, so it's hardly going to be a sob fest down there. Once when I worked in publishing, Simon, a guy had gone, with all due respect to him, totally tonto, he'd gone mad, and they had to get rid of him. And I remember that, to my horror, I pressed the door, the, the lift button, and there he was with two members of the senior management of the publishing company and his belongings in a cardboard box. And all I could think to say was, going down and he said much quicker than I thought and uh, does the manager have to go to his office and collect this stuff into a bag well I mean as it got 
as the manager appointments became more regular, I would go down to the training ground and dispense of people's services. And people used to say, you know, I got asked regularly, do you, do you ever feel bad about it or do you ever get any satisfaction from it? You know, I used to say to managers, I don't know how we're going to get along without you, but as for Monday, we're going to try with Very that sort good. of sentiment. And a couple of times, I think I fired Trevor Francis on his birthday and Trevor sort of said to me, it's my birthday. I said, well, I'll, I'll send your P45 along with your birthday card. And Peter Taylor was having his annual review Ray Graydon with the uh, League Managers Association. Oh, there's, a, there's an exercise in futility, if ever there was, the League Managers Association. And they were down giving Peter their two penneth. And I was waiting for Peter to come out of his office, and I got fed up with waiting. So I said, listen, Ray, I'm going to cut to the chase here. He's about to get fired, so I don't know quite what kind of review you want to give him, but you can do it in your own time now. <laughs> I mean, again, people don't understand how difficult this can be. I had to sack one of the staff of the magazine. It just wasn't working out. And he lay down in a curled-up ball at my feet and cried. You think you're going to have a human conversation, a manly yeah. conversation. You can never predict other people's reactions but was to rejection. Su- but was he surprised, Danny? I think he was relieved, is my yeah. guess. I think uh, the work was killing him. And I think in most instances, in whatever profession it is, and football is no different, if you fire somebody, most of the time they know it's coming. And if you fire somebody and they're surprised, then there's something wrong there. And most of the managers that I fired weren't surprised. Some of them were bloody relieved and only being held up by me at the time. Yes. The first manager I fired, I was sad for. There and afterwards, I wasn't sad for them because I gave football managers enough rope to either run with or to hang themselves with, and it was entirely their choice. Have you ever sacked a manager? So I'm going to ask you straightforwardly now because we know each other, because you knew someone better was lurking in the market. Yes, I think so. I think that the situation with Peter Taylor led me to the conclusion that we were going nowhere. I made a flippant comment about Peter Taylor being very good at doing Norman Wisdom impressions. I just didn't expect him to do them in my dugout. And at the time, I brought Peter back because he was, a again, there was a thought in my mind that Peter would unite the club. We'd been relegated for a season. Everything had gone Pete Tong with Ian Dowie, and there was a lot of controversy around that. I think it has a great reputation as a coach of football. It's not about a manager, but as a coach. And the irony of it was, Dan, is that Adam Pearson, who was his chairman at Hull, I knew really well. And Adam and I were mates, and he had accused me a couple of years earlier of wanting to take Peter. And Peter had wanted to come to Palace, I think, in about 2003, and he'd made this statement to somebody that he thought that there was a possibility... He was a Leicester manager at the time. He thought there was a possibility that it would go bad at Leicester for him. And if it did you know, at the beginning of the season, this is before the season started, that he wanted to perhaps look at Palace. And I thought, what a loser. Who starts with a half-empty glass? Who predicts the fact they're going to go badly? I don't want someone like that. And I remember thinking that he was a great coach, but not a manager. And I wanted managers. Of course you want them to be able to have a coaching mentality, but they've got a first-team coach. They've got an assistant manager. A manager's job, in my view, was to manage. So I managed to sort of buy the idea that Peter Taylor had somehow in those two years, whilst managing Gillingham or wherever he was, <laughs> had morphed into a manager and convinced myself. But did you get rid of him because you knew that Neil Warnock was yes. out there? Yeah, and that was the point you were leading yeah. towards, is that we were just going nowhere. The crowd were disillusioned. And I didn't tend to make decisions based upon the crowd's emotion. But when it becomes so pedestrian and you're starting to see the complete and utter removal of any direction, your team's OK, but it's just going nowhere and the players that you're buying are a little bit mediocre or you're allowing your manager to buy a little bit mediocre. The style of play isn't great. The performance isn't great. There's no great crime here, but we're not really going anywhere. And Neil Warnock was somebody that I had always benchmarked my team's character against his Sheffield United. 
So when Neil was available in 2007, I decided that I just didn't think that Peter and I was going to work out. So I removed Peter and very quickly put Neil in. I think we're in a world now where football management, more than anything else I can think of, has changed so profoundly. When I was growing up, and I think even when you got into the game, these were people who knew a bit about football and football tactics, but were sergeant majors, drill sergeants. They organised teams. And I think Alex Ferguson, to some extent, he had other talents as well, was the last one of those. Now we're seeing something completely different, Simon. And I uh, interviewed on uh, on TalkSport recently a chap called Jonathan Harding, who is, despite his name, actually German. He's written a new book called Mensch, and it's about the German coaching mentality, right. which dominated the world for 40 or 50 years. But now, he says, it's all about making people feel comfortable. It's all about people management. And really, seriously, we worked out, Lars Sievertson, who was on the show with me, said effectively now German coaches are like the team leaders at very nice Mm. holiday camps. I mean, is that right? Is that the way we should be going? I think it's part and parcel of it, Danny, because the introduction of enormous finances into football changes the direction of travel of how keen footballers are to consistently and persistently impress or to understand their responsibilities because ultimately outside of their responsibilities is an enormous paycheck whether they perform or they don't and a raft of influences agents other people that will consistently tell players even when they're wrong that they're right so I think that a modern day football manager has to have the balance between being able to manage people being able to communicate with them being able to bring them together as a unit but also I don't think the old art of concentrating people's minds has been lost. I just think the method of delivery has slightly changed. I think that the idea that you can do what Alex Ferguson did, which is the you know the fabled hairdryer to certain players, is probably dated. I think if you go down the pyramid towards the bottom of the still, championship, yeah. the top of the, uh, the League 1, League 2s, and certainly the non-league, there is a propensity for that management style to still exist. And and I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I think players are in a competitive and combative environment. And I think that part and parcel of a modern day's manager's array of skills should be able to concentrate their mind. But the idea that you can go down there and pin players against the wall or you can sergeant major them or you can bite and bark at them just to get what you want from them, I think those days have slightly gone even further down the pyramid. I mean, there's an amazing example in all of this. That's the England manager, Gareth Southgate. Yeah. Former Crystal Palace player and manager, of course. And I remember talking to you when he first got the England job. We both said, without any malice towards him, we were yep. saying, what the hell has he done? to earn the job That's as right. England manager. Now, he's got some very good players there, That's a good, but lots of managers have good players. He's an example of the new modern manager. He's great with the media. He seems yes, he to is. have the players eating out of his hands. I think he's caught a wave, in fairness, because the expectation level of England when Gareth Southgate took over, and we were absolutely unequivocal in our perspective. We felt that, A, he had no credential. His only credential was to get Middlesbrough relegated and leave them in the middle of the championship. B that, you know, the England manager should be someone that has achieved elite Authority, things. yeah. And he's come out of a background of the manner of the FA are now conducting himself, which is probably a slightly more inclusive club-like mentality. But he's also worked with England on 21s. And of course, as I've said before, if you put a lawyer in charge of business, you'll end up in court. If you put an under-21 manager in charge of the England team, you'll get a lot of young players there. And that means he still has the ability to be able to communicate with him in a certain way. I think Southgate has used that, the threshold of people's perspective of where the England team was and where it is now. We will see Southgate's 
direction of travel because the expectation level is now increasing We'll again. see his metal, won't we'll we? We'll see his metal. I think he's done tremendously well. My perception of him remains the same. I think he's caught a wave. I think he's done very well with what he's got. We'll see how he gets on in this latest tournament that's coming up. And we'll see how we get on in the next tournament where we're expected to qualify and do very well in. We will, of course, qualify, as we always have done. Most oh, we're flat-track bullies, aren't we, we as are. far as that goes? We yeah. are. And I think I don't know if that is reflective of modern-day management. I think the manner in which it communicates with the media, because the media now are all-consuming, they pay for football and they want their pound of flesh and they want people to be able to talk to them and they want to see the secrets and and behind the scenes and sometimes they'll be disappointed because when you go into these environments like dressing rooms and you see these so-called leaders of men giving these Churchillian speeches, sometimes I've had 19-year-old sales managers that have had far more (laughs) compelling things to say. Who was the manager... In all of the time that you were in the game, you know, yeah. you're still around the game now, but who was the one you most regret missing out on? Sooners. You nearly got Graham Sooners, yeah. did you? Yeah, I like wow. Graham. I mean, I know that people think that, you know, I, I see Graham speaking now and I love something he said the other day when he talked about football tactics. You know, football tactics are great, but being first of the ball is better. And football tactics come after you've been first of the ball. And all these people that talk about football tactics as the way that you win games, to my mind, is just drivel and I like that and people say you hear the, this generation of people saying well that's dinosaur Sunis was a strong manager and I like strong leaders and I think there's no you don't get weak leaders the reasons why this country is in a state is because we've got weak leaders in our political landscape but to be successful Klopp is a strong leader he might be an inclusive yeah. million dollar smile leader but he's a strong leader the players know where they stand with him and the fact that they're winning and playing in a certain way adds grist to his elbow but you can be clear that if it was going the other way he'd be strong Guardiola was very strong because he defied conventional wisdom by coming into this country and not acquiescing to the thought process you can't play this way in the English Premier League and, and everybody not playing else, six players were nine foot tall or and, nine players were six foot tall and everybody else has had to change yeah. to meet Guardiola that's the one you missed the most missed out on I'm going to leave Alex Ferguson out of this question hmm. in your time in football who was the manager who looked across from your view you know up in the, in the best seats in the house you'd look at the other dugout and think god i wish we had him as manager rather than the one i've got now um well it depends what level you, you know if you're talking at the level that i occupied a mm. lot of the time which was trying to get back out of the championship into the premier league yes you know neil warnock was at the center of my attention because i felt that he knew how to operate at that level he knew you know there's no good bringing a, a very good 800 meter runner in to run 100 meters you need someone that's proficient and efficient in that environment and warnock will get you out of the division he got Cardiff out last year because Neil's sheer personality and understanding of the metrics of that division. He knows how to manage up. He knows how to make people feel inclusive. So at that level, it would have always been Neil. At the Premier League level, well, I mean, it's difficult to covet other managers because they're in different environments. You look at Alex Ferguson. I always wondered, I always wondered to this day, if you took Ferguson out of Manchester United and chucked him into Accrington Stanley and see what he'd have done at Accrington Stanley because sometimes, despite the challenges of managing elite players, you know what wins good games? Great players. Great players. Placing a bet? It's exhausting running around looking for the best odds. Don't waste your breath. It's time you check Marathon Bet. Before you place your acker this week, check Marathon Bet first. You may find we're best priced. And better odds mean bigger winnings. Download the Marathon Bet app or visit marathonbet.co.uk. 18plusbgambleware.org. Now, Simon, comes the part of the show where our good friends at Marathon Bet have given us a charity bet. All we have to do is between, you know, both of us, choose three results that hold and we'll be giving a significant amount 
amount of money to a brilliant charity. I have to say, so far in the series, done well so far, haven't we? Charity zero. <laughs> Why don't you pick the three games that you're from this, this course, the last week of the Premier League okay. season? Okay, I find myself wanting to have a, a swing at Oligon Solskjaer, having called him an unavoidable mistake in being appointed. And I think Cardiff are going to finish their season with a win at Old Trafford to force more indignation upon the already rocking ship at Manchester United. Despite my dislike of Marco Silva, and there might be a better bet if he's going to stay at Everton next season if a better opportunity comes his way, but I think they're challenged this week with a win at Spurs' new stadium. And I'm going to defy my own wishes and condemn Liverpool to this lack of success in the Premier League by Wolves in the final game of the season, drawing at Anfield and stopping them in their tracks, even if Man City were to fail at Brighton. OK, thank you for those. Me, I think Arsenal's away form is just so bad, I wouldn't be at all surprised. So I'm going to go with Burnley to beat Arsenal on the last day of the season. Um, you've already mentioned Spurs. I think that game will be a draw. Yes. And finally, the game at Craven Cottage. I think Newcastle United are a, a, a much improved team. Um, Rafa Benitez is just a very good manager, much as Fulham have improved uh, since, of course, since they got relegated. We usually don't think they should be paid for improving after you get relegated. I think Newcastle will win in West London. 18 plus, begambleaware.org. Right, that's it. Thank you very much, Simon. Thank you, Danny. And thank you to everybody for listening to the podcast and downloading episode three. If you could carry on rating and leaving us comments, that would be very much appreciated. And feel free to send in your questions if you want to via at MarathonBet on Twitter. Next week, we'll be coming from far more discursive and blue sky thinking. Simon and I will get stuck into ways of moving football forward. <laughs>